So this morning, I'm gonna unpack this scripture for you, and we're gonna sit with this idea of what it means to come to me. Jesus' words, come to me. We're gonna sit with it because it's important, because the reality is most of us struggle with coming to Jesus, don't we? It's some season of our life, maybe daily, maybe ups and downs, wherever we're at. This whole idea of coming to Jesus, a lot of us struggle with it. But it's important because unless we come to him, we can't experience that rest. And a lot of us here today can probably relate to the idea that we're not living in to the most restful life. We're not experiencing the rest that Jesus has for us. We're going to unpack this in a little bit. Before we do that, I want to share with you a little of my journey. I have always struggled with rest. It has always been problematic for me. I grew up in a Christian home. My parents, like they honored Sabbath, and I hated it. Hated it every week. Felt like it was a waste of time and it was boring. I sat through so many sermons on Sabbath and why it was important and slowing down. I thought that slowing down and rest was for the slow people, the romantics, and the introverts. And I'm none of those things. <laughs> so I was like, this, this makes no sense to me. I just, I just didn't connect. Um, my personality doesn't naturally fit with rest. If you're familiar with the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram 8, which is a challenger, which is a like getting it done action kind of thing. I lean more towards being kind of type A. I like to move. I like activity. I like energy. And it just never really felt like I needed any rest. At the same time, I'm kind of a visionary. I lead a ministry that is super pioneering. And I thought, you know what? I'm always looking towards the future. And I'm thinking, like, what's the next thing? And, and so like, I just felt like, why slow down? Like, I'll rest when I die. Like, I'm just going to keep going, you know? Some of you are laughing because you're like, mm, this, this kind of resonates. <laughs> so it's like, I just felt like it never really fit my personality. And it was always this voice in my head, to be honest with you, that was like, this is not really for you. This is for other people, but like you're somehow like this doesn't really fit for you. And then I moved to San Francisco. And San Francisco is this like fast-paced city. Like it's always moving. There's always something happening. It's filled with entrepreneurs, people designing new things. There's always new apps and new social happenings and current events. And there's always this kind of sense that like if you're not with it, if you're not with the cutting edge thing, you're behind the ball and you've got to move faster to catch up. And so culture in San Francisco kind of conspires to like draw you into this like fast-paced, don't rest, make it happen, this opportunity is only going to come once in your life kind of thing. And so it has you moving really, really fast and you're looking around at what everyone else is doing and there's this voice of culture that's like, this is what your life could be. This is what your life should be if you could just keep up. And I moved into ministry, I moved into the Tenderloin in San Francisco when I was 18, and I lead a ministry with women who are dealing with complex trauma and addiction and violence and pain, and it's high stress. And there's always another need. There's always like something. There's always like somebody that needs help. And so I find myself in this rhythm of just saying yes, 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 because this time could be their breakthrough. This time I take them to rehab, it could be everything. And there's this voice of need constantly. 
I spent my 20s traveling around the world doing missions, and I went to some of the darkest places. I went into brothels and strip clubs and back alleys and went after the people that I felt God was like, I want you to go and pursue them in the darkest places. And I had zero understanding of self-care. And so I said a quick prayer before I went in, and over the years, I didn't realize that I was becoming emotionally and spiritually exhausted. Because the thing is, that voice of need is always there. And sometimes, and maybe some of you can relate to this, but exhaustion almost becomes like a badge of holiness, right? Doing God's work. I'm like doing ministry. We're like burning ourselves into the ground sometimes. And then I had kids. And um, my first child, he came out weighing nine pounds, 12 ounces, Mm-hmm. And, then, and then my second child came out weighing 10 pounds, 5 ounces. No C-section, ladies, I'm just saying. And my kids came out like they were three months old. Like literally, when my second came out, the doctors and the nurses all went, wow. And I was like, oh my gosh. And so they came out three months old. There was no newborn stage. There was no sleeping. There was no like, we just want to chill here and look cute. They were like not wanting to sleep. They were like, go get him. Like, and I was just like plummeting into this hole of motherhood. And it was just like, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with these children. Like they were just like so much energy. They still do. Two boys, just like everything you imagine, just like running crazy. And I struggled with postpartum depression. And I felt like I didn't know what to do. I was out of my depth. There was never enough sleep. There was never enough coffee. And there was never enough knowledge to know what to do with these children. I just felt like there was never enough. And then there was this voice of scarcity. And it was just like, there's not enough, Ruthie. There's not enough of you to be able to raise these children. And so this has been my story with rest, when you combine all of those things, what was created was the story of like, you either can't rest, you don't get to rest, there's too much to do, it's too hard for you, you'll rest when they go to college, like all of those kind of ideas. That was my story. And so that's why I'm coming to you this morning as speaking from a place of struggle. This has not been easy for me. In his book, The Soul of Shame, Kurt Thompson writes that each of us lives within a story we believe we occupy. And so what Kurt is saying is that whether we're conscious of it or not, we each believe that we are a character in a story. And it's a story of our lives, and it's a story about rest. And we live into that story, and that story is created by all the voices. All the voices, maybe some that are the same that I just mentioned, but also your story, my story, everyone's story is so nuanced, so different, depending on family and your life circumstances and where you grow up, but there's a story, and it feels true, and we live into it. And sometimes our story predates us. Sometimes our story is handed to us by our grandparents or our parents, depending on their life, habits and generational rhythms and the ways we just live and the ways we think about rest. And though every story is fairly nuanced and different, there are usually some common components when we really drill into the idea of like, what do you think about rest and how you access it? 
For about three years, I was leading day-long retreats for women, and we were digging into this idea of rest. And I took about 200 women through this day-long retreat. We talked about it, we unpacked it, and there were three key themes that came out of those conversations that we talked about, tell me your story, tell me how you feel about rest. I asked them to share, just like I shared this morning, tell me, what has your journey been like? There were three themes that, that consistently came about, and they were scarcity, restlessness, and exhaustion. And I want to unpack those just a little bit for us this morning. You see, most of us, a lot of us, probably wake up in the mornings and we think, oh, I didn't get enough sleep. And then we go to bed at night and we feel like, oh, I didn't get enough done. And we begin to live life through this lens that there's not enough or we're not getting enough done. We're always striving to do more. There's not enough resources, not enough time, not enough energy. And our lives begin to look through this distorted lens of scarcity. And we begin to feel like there is not enough and we are not getting enough done. And then we begin to expect to be without. And so we frantically hold on. If there's not enough, there's not enough for everyone, then I've got to hold on to mine. I mean, how many of us have said yes to an opportunity because we're like, oh, it might not come round again. We might not get this opportunity. Oh, even though I'm exhausted and I feel like I don't know if I can do it in this season, I'm going to say yes because I might not get it again. And so we've got the scarcity thinking. And the thing about scarcity is it says there's not enough and you're not doing enough, but it's deeper than that. It says you're not enough. You're not enough. You're lacking somehow. You don't have what it takes. For some of us, it might be you're a failure. You're missing something. There's something wrong with you. And this is so much of what I battled as a young mom. And so scarcity begins to drive this wheel in our life. There's no time to slow down. We have to keep hustling. We have to do something now. We have to prove ourselves. We have to do more and more, and so it leads to this restlessness. And we become deeply uncomfortable with stillness, with quiet. We try and meditate, we try and pray, and like two minutes in, we're like fidgety. We're like agitated, we're like anxious. We're like, okay, I'm just gonna check my phone like one more time. We pull it out, like we don't know what to do when we're bored. We don't know what to do when things are still. Restlessness is characterized by ceaseless activity, constant movement. It's this idea of like one of those kitchen mixers, just stirring and stirring and stirring again and again. And you see, the fruit of restlessness is the inability to be present, to cultivate intimacy. Because we're always moving, whether it's internal or external. You see, intimacy requires that we stay present, like we're committed, we're in this. But it's like, how can we just stay put when everything inside of us is moving and wanting an activity and like, I can't slow down because we feel so restless and then we're so exhausted and we keep moving, but we're so weary and we need to stop because we can't stop because the voice of scarcity and the restlessness and all of this cycle keeps going. We're tired, we're discontent, we're sick and we're drained and we're dragging into every day, and we're dragging into our relationships, and we want intimacy in our relationships, but we're like, we're looking over here, and it's just really difficult. If I asked you this morning, how many of you felt like, oh, my soul's kind of at capacity, a number of you would raise your hand, or the reality is a number of us would go, actually, I don't know. 
Sometimes I visit my chiropractor. I did actually right before this trip. And I'll lay down on the table and she'll be like, Ruthie, how are you doing? And I'm like, yeah, I'm doing great. Actually, I feel pretty good. I probably don't even need to be here. Within two minutes, I found about 15 different ailments. I'm like, actually, this hurts. Oh my gosh, yeah. And this whole week, I've been like limping around. Like, I don't even know what's wrong with me because I'm moving so fast. And it isn't until we relax and rest and connect and we go, oh, actually, There's all this stuff. I wonder this morning if you even know how you're doing. I wonder this morning if I asked you that question about rest, how many of you would be able to say, yeah, I'm really aware of where I'm at. Some of you just like, I don't know. Like I'm just thinking about it right now for like the first time. So we feel the scarcity and this restlessness and exhaustion. And then we come to church And we hear someone read a passage from Matthew 11. And it says, come to me and I'll give you rest. And the thing about this passage is we can have one of three responses usually. The first response might be, okay, Jesus said, come to me and I'll give you rest, but he wasn't serious. Like he was just like saying like nice stuff, like Jesus stuff to say, but like he didn't really mean it. But that kind of thinking is problematic because if Jesus isn't serious here, Is he serious here and here? Like, how do we know when Jesus is being serious? How do we know when he's being truthful? And so if we keep going down that road and saying, oh, trying to blow off that passage, then we start to blow off all of Scripture. And then how have we got any stability in our faith? Second option is to think, well, you know, Jesus said that, and that's for some people. I lived into this option a lot. That's for the romantics and the introverts and the slow people. They get to experience rest. But the rest of us, we just got to hustle and grind it out. But the problem with that kind of thinking is then we start thinking that God is favorites. Like some people get to rest. Some people get to enjoy this warm invitation from Jesus, but not me. I just got to grind it out till I die. You see, that second option is problematic too. So then we find ourselves... And number three, okay, we think Jesus is serious and we think God's probably not playing favorites. This is an invitation for everyone. But then why is it so darn hard to access rest? Like if it's true and if it's for me, why haven't I experienced that? Why hasn't that been my life? And that's the question I think probably a lot of us are asking this morning. And why is it so hard In 2012, Brene Brown, some of you might be familiar with her, gave a dynamic TED talk, and it was called Listening to Shame. And it was an overnight hit. To date, it has had over 10 million views. And the huge interest in this TED talk proved that it resonated with so many people. And Brene speaks of this unspoken epidemic of shame. And just to be clear, an epidemic is a disease that's out of control. It's out of control and it's spreading. And she says that shame is like a disease that's out of control and spreading. And this is her definition of shame. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. You see, sometimes we confuse guilt and shame. Guilt says that behavior was wrong. Shame says you are wrong. 
Guilt says, hey, don't do that again. You're feeling bad about what you did. Shame says, deep, deep, deep in yourself, there's something wrong with you. You are flawed. You are unworthy. It's a deeper, deeper word into ourself. Later in Kurt Thompson's book, The Soul of Shame, he says to be human is to be infected with this phenomenon we call shame. See, all of us deal with shame. It's part of being human. But we're so rarely aware of it in our life. And this is because of the nature of shame. You see, shame does its best work in the dark. It doesn't want to be in the spotlight. It doesn't want to stand on a stage like this. It wants to be in the back corner where no one can see it. Because once shame is exposed, that is how we deal with it. It doesn't want to be seen. It doesn't want to come out into the light. And so many of us are like, I don't deal with shame. I've had countless conversations with people. I don't deal with shame. A little while later, they'll come back to me and they're like, whoa, I'm seeing all this stuff. Yep. That's exactly how shame works in our life. It's in the recesses, it's in the corners, and we're so often not aware of it. And shame is not haphazard. It is very strategic and very intentional. If you sit down and talk with enough people, which is part of what I do at my work, and I hear their stories of pain, I see a strategy I see intentionality. I see how shame has gone after their lives. It's not haphazard. It's very intentional and very strategic. And it's telling them a story. You see, shame is a storyteller. And it's attempting to communicate something. And sometimes we feel it and sometimes we hear it with words. And what it is communicating is that we are flawed, and unworthy of love and belonging. My very first memory is being three years old at preschool. I don't remember the exact details, but I remember being deeply embarrassed by one of the teachers in front of my group and running away. Why is that my first memory? Why has that stayed with me 30 plus years later? Because shame is so strategic, so intentional. And for me, that was part of my story, part of shame story for my life. It started when I was three. I imagine if we got in conversation today that you probably have your own memories where you've experienced shame. And the thing about shame is that it's telling us a story, but it's not a true story. It isn't speaking God's truth into our life. It's speaking lies. And Jesus is super clear in Scripture about where lies come from. In John 8, he's speaking to the Jewish people who are disputing who he is. And he's saying, hey, you can have one of two fathers. It could be my father in heaven, or you can have a different father. And that's the devil. He's not messing around. He's really speaking spiritual truth. And he's saying, you can be of God, my father. You can be in that kingdom. Or you can be in the kingdom with a different kind of father. There's no in between. It's one or the other. And then he goes on to say this. John 8, verse 44. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar 
and the father of lies. You see, there's two things we learn here about the devil. Number one, he lies. Number two, he's a murderer. And sometimes when we think about the devil, we think about, you know, kind of like a, a comic book or cartoon, like the devil is like a little person on our shoulder, whispering sweet little things that might be a little lie here or there, not that bad. But the thing is, that's not actually how the devil works. The devil is way more complex than that. You see, some of the lies that we experience aren't just a little thing there and a little thing here, but they're complex and they're web-like and he's no respecter of age. He doesn't care whether you're three or whether you're 30. He wants to tell you a story about your life and it's a lie and it's a falsehood and it's a deception and this is how shame comes into our life. It's a tool of the enemy And the second thing is, the enemy is a murderer. He's about our destruction. He's not interested in just tripping you up or slowing you down. He's not a prankster and he's not a joker. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy your business. He wants to destroy your future. That is his strategy. That's what Jesus is saying here. He will lie to you for the purpose of destroying you. And see, shame is this deep lie that gets roots deep into our life and it begins to unravel our sense of self. Are we loved? Do we belong? And if he can unravel us at that deep place, then he can set the course of our lives for destruction. You see, shame is the enemy of rest. Shame is the enemy of rest. When we come into this place where we want to rest, We want to come to Jesus and we just find we have all these voices and we have all these questions and a whole web of lies. Like, how do we even get through that? The good news is that there's a different story for our life, a better story and one that is actually true. And there is a voice that wants to be heard above all other voices, and it's loving, and it's good, and it speaks truth. And that's the voice of Jesus. Just a couple of chapters on in the book of John, Jesus says this in John 10, verse one. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Now we need to stop here for just a moment because this is key, not only for us accessing rest, but for the Christian life. Jesus speaks, he speaks often and in a variety of ways. You may have grown up in a church that did not emphasize this passage. You might not have heard this talked about a lot, but this is the truth. Jesus speaks to every single one of us. There is not one of us that is disqualified from this promise, this truth. And I don't care if you've heard in your life that this is for the chosen ones, or this is for the church leadership, or this is for the few crazy prophetic people. That is a lie, and the devil has been spinning that since the beginning of time. The truth is that God's promise is that you are his sheep, and that he speaks to you, 
and that you hear his voice. That is the promise for each one of us. And the thing about Jesus is he's not short on words. He's not silent. I often like to talk about him and say that he's chatty or he's a talker because that has been my experience. Every good parent is. Can you imagine I'm sitting in my living room and my four-year-old comes in and is like, la, 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 because four-year-olds have got so much to say. And I'm just like... That's not the heart of a good parent. The heart of a good parent gets down on the floor and says, tell me about your life. Let's talk about this. Let's joke. Let's chat. Oh, I love you. I'm proud of you. You're doing so great. Like, that's the heart of a parent. But something gets just distorted because when we begin to think of God and he's this heavenly father that's so good, but somehow we begin to think that he is silent or just wants to bark orders or shout discipline. And that when we come into worship, the first thing he'd want to say to us is, I know what you were doing last night. I know about your life. Could you just step it up? When I go home from this trip, I see my kids, and this is usually how it goes. I walk through the door, and my kids go, did you bring me a toy? First thing they say, because I usually always do. (laughs) And, um, And then number two is they'll just say, mommy, we missed you. And they'll run to me. And I do not put my arm out and go, hold on, have you done your homework? Did you clean your room? Seriously, you're still wearing those pants with the holes in the knees? Like, that is not what I say to my children. I run to them, and I don't care what they've been doing all weekend. And they don't care what I've been doing, because it's relationship. And I hold them in my arms. And if you're here this morning, and you think that Jesus doesn't want to hold you in his arms... He does, and he wants to whisper in your ear, and he wants to talk to you. You see that scarcity that gets into our hearts and says, your father doesn't have much to say to you today. He has so much to say. What I love about this too is that Jesus says that he calls them by name. Have you heard Jesus call your name? Have you heard him say your name? And you had that moment where you're like, he knows me. That's what he wants for us this morning. And you see, we need to hear this voice so badly. It is so vital that we can hear Jesus' voice because all the other voices, need and scarcity and personality and family and culture, all of this is coming at us constantly. And we need to hear the voice of truth. We need to know what's true about our lives. And if Jesus were here and had something to say to us this morning, which I believe he does, this is what he may be saying. Come to me and I'll give you rest and you'll find rest for your souls. Come to me. Come to me. You see, shame says, get away from me. Shame says you're flawed and unworthy of love and belonging, move away. Shame makes us isolate. But you see here how Jesus just comes right into our hearts and confronts the shame and says, no, come. It's like this image of a really good parent climbing down on the floor and saying, come here, come to me. I wanna connect with you. You see, Jesus always confronts our shame for the purpose of healing and freeing us. There's such a tenderness In this passage, most of us live with a voice in our head that is incredibly burdensome and harsh. Do better, try harder, be better. 
And Jesus simply comes and cuts through all of that and says, come to me, come to me. And the thing about this is it's, 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 not, this really, it's not this aside, it's actually really important. It's not this, hey dude, I wanna holler at you, come over here. It's like this like, come to me, come to me. It's this intimacy. It's not this casual like, hey, what's up? It's like this, come to me in intimacy. If you want rest, come to me. And this is the story that he speaks over our lives. I've redeemed you and I've paid for you. I purchased your rest on the cross, meaning that all of the lies, all of the shame are null and void. All of your past efforts, all of your struggle, everything you're hauling around, that's mine now. I took that to the cross. You're not made worthy by your activity, your capacity, your efficiency, or your hustle. Neither are you unworthy because of your failure, your struggle, or your anxiety. Jesus makes us worthy by his blood, amen? It's our inheritance. Rest is our inheritance. I wanted to mention just briefly this idea of the yoke that Jesus says, my yoke is easy. I know Pastor Chris talked about this recently, but just to touch on it again, Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, for every Jewish listener, this meant something to them. We just like skim over this because we're like, yoke, egg yoke? Like, I don't know, what is he talking about? This actually meant something to the Jewish reader. And one of the things it meant is this word yoke actually meant this like wooden framework that would tie two animals together and they would plow the ground or they would pull a load. And you see, the listeners of this, they felt the load. They would have known that kind of weight because the Pharisees had written so many laws and then laws to keep those laws. And it was burdensome and it was heavy and it was like being yoked to something that was really hard work and you were dragging it around. So when Jesus says, come to me, my yoke is easy, is he saying, I wanna take that off of you and I wanna give you a different kind of yoke. My kind of yoke, I wanna tie you to me. This is a beautiful invitation. Wow, Jesus is saying like, hey, come to me, let's do this together. It's not just like, I bless you as you go out and do hard things. And most of us live life that way, don't we? We think maybe Jesus is cheering us on, but it's like from a distance, and he gives us a little wave now and again, because remember, he doesn't talk much. And he just says, yeah, that's good, keep going. No, the kind of yoke that Jesus invites us into, he's like, come on, climb in next to me. Do this together. You don't have to be alone in life. Be my disciple. Follow me. Let's do this thing together. Let me help you carry that load. That's the invitation this morning into this deep place of intimacy where we are locked in with Jesus and he confronts anything in our life that will get in the way of you being locked in with him. God will come after every single thing in your life that is getting in the way of intimacy because he is so passionate about you. And you might be in this hard place right now. You're like, God, you're like wrecking me and you're like doing all this stuff and it's really painful. Hang in there because he's doing it because he wants intimacy with you. He loves you and he knows that you long for rest and rest is only found in him. You see, this is our first position now. We have rest because of him. What if we start to prophetically declare? 
What if resting, as in Sabbath, taking a break, daily office, prayer, margin, however you do rest, what if that actually becomes a prophetic declaration of something that we already have rather than practicing something because we're trying to get it? See, so often we go after rest. Okay, I'm going to take a day off and I'm going to try and access rest. But what if instead we take a day off, we take a Sabbath because we have rest, because this is actually who we are. You see, I think God wants to flip how we see rest this morning. He wants to reframe it. See, so often we're reaching for it and then Sabbath comes and something happens and our kids get crazy or we get a phone call and we're like, oh, I didn't get my rest. And it's like this thing we either get or we don't get. But what I think rest is, is actually me practicing who I really am. Because the life will tell me, I have a story and I don't get to rest and there's all these needs and there's all this stuff and I try to rest to like get rest but instead the last two or three years what I've been trying to do is say, I'm taking a Sabbath because it's who I am. It's my core. It's what Jesus paid for on the cross and it's a prophetic declaration of who he is. See, we already have access to it but our brains need a little switch this morning. It's who we already are. I have this uh, kind of fire safe box that I keep up in our closet and it's got all these important documents in it, including my passport. And like like I said earlier, I'm British. And periodically I pull out that box and I look at it and I pull out my passport and I flip through it just for kind of like memory lane. I like to eat British food, I like to watch British shows, like I do that kind of thing, to remember who I am. That's who I am at my core. I was born and raised in England. And I think some of us this morning need to pull down that fire safety box and unlock it and say, oh, I'm going to practice rest because it's actually who I am. I think rest is deeply connected to our understanding of what Jesus paid for on the cross for us. It's who we are, and we make that prophetic declaration. See, sometimes we turn our attention to Jesus, and we say, Jesus, I need to hear your voice again. Just just tell me again, who am I? Who am I? Oh, yeah, I'm your child. I'm your sheep. I hear your voice. I have rest as a gift because of you, because we're yoked together. Okay, just remind me. And so we keep turning our attention to Jesus. Sabbath is a great way to do this. Dr. Dan Allender, Allender, he's a professor of counseling at Seattle Pacific, wrote a book called Sabbath, and he says this, Sabbath is not about time off or break in routine. It's not a mini vacation to give us respite, so we're better prepared to go back to work. The Sabbath is far more than a diversion. It's meant to be an encounter with God's delight. I know Pastor Chris talked about this recently, I think it was just last week, One moment with Jesus changes everything. Here's the thing about delight. Delight disarms unworthiness. Delight disarms unworthiness. If you're here this morning and you've got the shame and all the stuff you've been hauling around, you feel like a failure or just, I don't know how to do this. I felt like that. 30 years in the church, I'd never figured out Sabbath, never figured out rest. There was this deep sense of failure But then when I came into the presence of God and experienced his delight, 
that says, oh, it's not dependent on you and what you've done, it's dependent on me and what I've done. When I experience that kind of delight, it just disarms all the shame, all the unworthiness, all the lies, all of the stuff, and I just go, oh, is this what it feels like to experience rest? I think rest is deeply tied into experiencing God's delight for us. And sometimes it's a matter of turning our attention And whether that's one day of the week or an afternoon or a few hours, and maybe you're like me, it changes like every week because someone's got ballet or someone's got soccer or like someone's got both. And it's just like, there's like a million things. You're like, how do we even do Sabbath? Don't get caught up too much in the logistics. Find some time to turn your attention and pull down that box and say, this is what I do. This is who I am because of Jesus. I get to rest. Jesus, show me your delight. Speak to me. I need to feel that again. One of the last things I'll say this morning is, um, I know for some of us practicing a whole day of Sabbath just might feel like a mountain. It's like, oh my goodness. Even putting my phone down for like two minutes and I'm like, ooh, Jonesen. Then this might be helpful. One of the things I've tried to practice is something I call pockets to pause. It's just little pockets in my day. Life is crazy, and I've got these kids, and I've got ministry, and my husband's in grad school, and working, and we've got all these things going on. And so what I've tried to do is incorporate rest into my day in these little pockets. One of the ways I do it is early in the morning, at some point, and when I say early, I mean before noon, No, I'm in Santa Barbara right now. (laughs) Before noon, might be a little slower, but just like at some point, turning our attention to Jesus. One of the ways I practice this is I work a lot from coffee shops. I usually have a long to-do list. I grab coffee, I put my laptop down, and my normal MO is to flip open that laptop and start working before I even sipped on my coffee. So I started instituting this pockets to pause where I made a commitment I would take maybe three minutes before I peeked that laptop open. And that might sound crazy, but I'm gonna be honest, it feels like warfare. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna resist the to-do list. And all of the stuff and I'm going to pause and turn my attention to Jesus. And you know what shame says in that moment? Seriously, that's all you can manage, three minutes? And I go, died on the cross for me. Don't get to listen to your voice anymore. Three minutes is good. I turn my attention to Jesus. Anything you try, shame will come after. Any effort will never be good enough. So start believing that some effort is. One thing, one minute, two minutes in your car. I drive a lot. I'm that typical mom that has soccer and drop-offs and school times and they're all different and I'm driving all over the place and I use my car. My car is like a sacred place. Like it is a sacred place. You wouldn't know it by looking at it, but it is, I promise you. It's the spiritual environment that matters. But like I put worship music on or I get to school like five minutes early and turn off the car and instead of pulling out social media or instead of going out to chat with other moms, I say, Jesus, right here, right now, remind me who am I again? Okay, I'm your child. Okay, you delight, but I just, I failed at this and this didn't, it's okay, you still delight because it's not based on what I do, it's based on what you've done. Take a little longer in the shower, just turning my attention to Jesus. Whatever it look like, looks like for you, find these pockets, find these pauses, and don't listen to the shame that tells you it's not enough. 
Don't listen to the shame that says, by now you should be doing a full day of Sabbath. Take any moment, silence the shame, and turn your attention to Jesus because he's saying, come to me. I wanna close with some questions to reflect on. I think Robert's gonna come on out and play. Let's go ahead and just close our eyes this morning and just take a moment to reflect. I want you just to reflect on your own story of rest and what, it, what voices have influenced you. You heard mine, but what, what stories, or what voices, it might be culture, it might be your school or your workplace, your boss, your family, your spouse, your history, your personality, what has shaped how you think about rest? And as you reflect on that, I want you to begin just to take a moment to identify where shame has showed up in your story. Maybe it's you've tried to rest and you've really found the voices just kick in in the silence that you're not good enough, you need to try harder, you need to work more, you need to hustle. What does shame look like in your story? How has it crippled you? How has it paralyzed you? And then what could pockets of pause look like for you in life? Just, just think about your life, think about your week, think about your responsibilities. What could it look like? What feels realistic for you? Maybe it's the morning, maybe it's the evening, in the car. What does it look like just to take moments to turn your attention to Jesus? In a moment, we're gonna move into some worship, and I just wanted to let you know that we have opportunity for response here this morning. I believe there's a prayer team. There's carpets up front. Something that we've been practicing at Reality San Francisco was sharing prophetic words that we've got before service. And I was praying for you all this week. My husband and I have been praying. I wanted to share some words with you that I felt like were for some of you here this morning. Um, I felt like there were some of you here that have been the words, like this, this message about shame, it just really has really pierced you and hit your heart. Because there's something in your life that you felt very ashamed of, that you've been carrying around, and it has literally felt like that heavy yoke. And if that's you this morning, Jesus absolutely sees you. And it would be his pleasure just to come and minister to that place of pain. There's gonna be people up here that will pray for you. I'd like to invite you to come forward if that's you. The other word I got was I felt like there was someone here who'd had some kind of business failure. I don't know whether it was like bankruptcy or some kind of business thing that didn't work out and you'd invested so much into it and it fell apart and you felt like a failure. And it has been this defining moment in your life that everything changed since that point. Like it just really deeply affected you. And I felt as I was praying for you this week that if that's you, the Lord would love you to come forward and receive some prayer, but just wants to encourage you that he wants to redefine that moment and that he wants to invite you into a new season. And that in fact, you've actually looked back at that event and you've thought, why can't I just not shake it off? And it's shame. 
Shame has got a hold of you because of that thing. It might have been you, it might have been in your family, but it's like you felt the weight of it and God wants to free you from that this morning. The other thing I wanted to share was I feel like some of you have tried this. And even now as you're sitting here, the voice of shame says, oh, remember that last message you heard about rest and you tried it and you failed? Don't set yourself up for disappointment. And you're like, I tried this last week, tried this last year. And I just wanna reiterate that the invitation from Jesus never changes, no matter how many times you've tried. He says, come to me. And this morning, if that's you, you might wanna come kneel just as a response, just to say, oh, Jesus, I'm coming. I'm coming even though I'm so disappointed and I feel like a wreck and I can't do this and I just feel like a hot mess and I'm just coming anyway. Just come as you are. I wanna encourage you to respond. Jesus, I just thank you that you're here to do something beautiful in our lives. And we're so in love with you, Jesus. And I just pray that you would even right now that you would just move and touch hearts in this room, just see you like moving and putting your hand on people and just touching them and just beginning to lift off of them. I just see you speaking hope. Sense that some of you here deeply need hope. You need to just hear somebody say, we can do this, let's do it together. Things are gonna change. I feel like there's some of you here that you've been waiting on a breakthrough. You've been just waiting, God, like I, I just am so weary, I'm so tired. And I just, Jesus just wants to come and just breathe hope, breathe faith to turn your attention to Jesus this morning. Thank you, Lord. Amen.